I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are, I'm going to have to zoom today because there's so much to cover, but I'm excited. So if you feel like I'm waffling, just give me the scroll up sign. Just scroll up on your iPad, James. Just keep going. Keep going. Scroll up. And uh, today, I, I want to just say from the outset, we're, we're going to be preaching some exciting but challenging things. How many of you know that the, that the Bible is full of exciting but challenging things to our lives? Some parts of Scripture are just bliss to read. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I love it. I could just dwell there all day. And some parts of Scripture cut right to the heart. And they challenge us. They make us feel uncomfortable. But it's there, and we're going to preach it. And we're going to wrestle with it. It's like when I was in school training as an actor. We won't go into that. But one of my professors said to me when we were doing Shakespeare, because we were all nervous and we're approaching it with, with kid gloves. And he said, it is, it is amazing and it is hard, but eventually you've just got to do it. So these parts of scripture that challenge us, we're going to do them. We're going to engage them. We're going to dig in. Happiness? All right. And I'm just the kind-hearted, sensitive guy to be preaching it, right? Exactly. I see that hand. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're continuing in our series of 1 Peter, uh, a royal priesthood, and we're reading this letter that Peter has written to the people of modern-day Asia Minor, Turkey, uh, sort of that area of the world, and he's writing to a people who are ruled by the Roman Empire. They're occupied by the Roman Empire, and he's writing them in this context. He's, he's writing them as Gentiles who are like you and me in the sense that they have never, they never met or saw the physical man, Jesus Christ. They never met or saw him. But, as Peter says in the first chapter, they love and believe in him. So we're starting to see a generation of believers that is exactly like you and me, having never seen or experienced the physical man, Jesus Christ, but their faith, their belief, and their love is in him and for him. And remember that when, when we come to this letter, we have to remember that we are in a letter. Most of the New Testament is letters. Most of the New Testament is letters. So we have to remind ourselves about the structure and what we can expect from a letter when we're reading a New Testament letter. And when we do that, it helps us kind of keep our bearings, keep where we are in what's being taught or commanded or revealed by where the author is in his letter. When was the last time you wrote a letter? Well, some of you are just old-fashioned awesome, but I had to write a letter two weeks ago. It was a letter to cancel a gym membership. How many of you ever had to to do that? You can literally on your phone sign up for a gym membership, but if you want to cancel a gym membership, it's back to Civil War era communication, okay? You know? It's like, give my love to all of the people there. Can you cancel my membership, please? And I'll thank you to do it before the next billing date. So knowing where we are in a New Testament letter helps us understand what's being commanded, what's being explained. And we realize that there are three major parts, I'll review really quickly, three major things that we can expect when we're in a New Testament letter. First off is an opening that declares, look at the amazing, wonderful greatness of what God has done for us. Look at the greatness of what God has done for us. And Peter, Peter, you know, extols the greatness of what God has done by reminding us that we have a new birth into a living hope. We have a, a salvation and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And isn't that great that he doesn't just say, it's a great salvation, it's a great inheritance. No, it'll never perish, spoil, or fade. It's a salvation that we can be confident in for the day when Jesus comes again, when he returns, and we stand in judgment. It's a salvation that says we are shielded in God's power, and our position before God has changed to one that is redeemed. 
It's a salvation that changes our position today. It's also a salvation that is poured out into our lives now with such life and such redemption that we express it with a great and inexpressible joy. Even in the midst of great trials and suffering, that while we don't ever diminish that idea, we, we reckon and we realize those trials are not as eternal as the salvation that God has given us. And in that way, the salvation that, that God has given us not only changes our position before God, it changes our disposition here, this side of heaven, and allows us joy inexpressible. So this opening, look what God has done for us. That's where a New Testament letter starts. And then we begin to see in each New Testament letter somewhat of a transition that goes from look what God has done for us to that place of, and you know, what God has done for us should matter in our lives and how we think. It really should matter. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it's not on the screen, but Peter Peter makes this turn and and he uses that word, therefore. So he's he's expressed the greatness of the gospel and salvation and it's as if to say, since you have the gospel, since you do believe... There's going to be evidence in your life. God's mysterious gospel expressed in wonderful mystery, and we, we employ our belief. God says, I've expressed the gospel in holiness, now live a holy life. Our hearts are filled with sincere love for one another, as Peter writes. And by the way, that's going to start to make its way into our actions, infiltrating our actions. We see that Jesus is precious to us who believe in him Never seen him in the flesh, but love him and believe him. Jesus is precious. And because of that, our relationship to him is not like the world's relationship to him. Where he comes and and the world who does not believe in him, Jesus to them is a stumbling stone. Is a stone that causes them to stumble in their pride and sinfulness. But to those of us who believe, that stumbling stone becomes precious and has then become the cornerstone. And Steve preached so wonderfully last week that the significance of a cornerstone is that it is literally the perfectly cut, meticulously, completely perfect stone set in the exact place from which the entire rest of the building will take its shape, its lines, its structure, its perspective, its proportions. That stone informs the whole of the building. And we learn that we are God's possession. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, as Steve preached last week, with a right of access to God that means something only if we engage it. It's an absolute, final, fundamental renewal of our personhood before God. And that should just, quite frankly, mean something. And that's why the Lord can describe us as living stones in light of the precious cornerstone. So it's not just the opening of the letter, look what God has done for us. It transitions into, this should mean something to us. This should mean something to us. And today, we're going to make the turn into the third part that we can expect in every New Testament letter, and that is an application part. And that's usually going to take up most of the letter because it's when the author of the letter says, in light of all of this, in light of what God has done, in light of the fact that it should be meaningful in our lives, okay, in your context, I have some things to impart to you regarding getting nitty-gritty specifics dirt on your hands into these things. And that's the turn we're making today. It involves more specifics. It involves more commands. It involves more outworking. And it requires, I think, a more open heart because it is really awesome to read things like we have a new birth into a living hope in Jesus. I mean, come on, let's just preach that forever. That would be the best. 
But when we get into the nitty-gritty of how things are outworked into our life, it's not just realizing, but it's applying, and it's obeying, and it means actual happenings in our life, right? Any of you who are parents know that to be true. So Peter begins his more specific teaching into an area that is very relevant to his reader's context, and I think it's relevant to ours as well. He's going to get more specific, and where he begins is a very clear idea, and that idea is enduring in an unjust world. Enduring in an unjust and worldly society. Enduring in a world that is very, very adept at expressing the full development of hateful brokenness. Enduring in a world that is just expert at putting that on display. Enduring in a world that then tries to solve the results of hateful brokenness by shifting it around. By shifting around blame, by shifting around experience, by shifting around through finger pointing. And the goal of it all, like musical chairs, is get out of the way of the injustice. Do whatever you can. Grab whatever power. Grab whatever position. Adjust yourself accordingly. But get out of the way of hateful brokenness. It's the mechanics of the world. And we are to endure in the midst of a world that functions that way. And Peter is beginning to make that turn in his letter. Already you can tell this is going to be fun to preach. You're looking at me like you weren't lying, James. So Peter has already expounded so wonderfully on the what of what we believe in Christ. He's expounded on what I'm going to call the what, the what of what we believe. But enduring this world is going to speak more to the how we go about outworking that belief. How we go about outworking the what. The what, as we've seen, is glorious. The what is glorious. A new, hurt, a new, new hope, a new birth, you know, an inheritance that won't spoil, perish, or fade. I'm going to keep going back to that. The what is glorious, but the how, let's be honest, can be laborious. And that rhymes so you know it's true. That's for free. Peter is teaching us these things because it is not just the what of what we believe that actually differentiates us from the world. It's the how we go about outworking it. The what of what we believe does differentiate us in our position before God from the world. We've already seen that, that our salvation has worked out that way. But how we go about believing it, how we go about outworking it, if we're honest, often doesn't differentiate us at all. It doesn't differentiate us at all. How we work out what we believe differentiates us not just in our position before God, but presently from an unjust world. Remember the salvation of position and disposition? That's the what? Well, the how is worked out in the same way. And the how speaks more to our disposition. So if the how of of us working things out is done poorly, the what of what we believe can largely be discredited or sabotaged in the world's eyes. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13, everyone's favorite chapter in the Bible on love, and rightfully so. But he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have faith that can move mountains, and he lists so many wonderful things, he says, but if I have not love, he doesn't just say I'm slightly off. He says, I have nothing. I have nothing. Jesus said to his disciples, the world will know that you are my disciples by this, that you believe all the right things. No, although we do, by your love. Jesus is speaking of the how, and Peter is speaking of that too. It's almost easy to believe differently in the midst of an unjust world, isn't it? 
It's not, I'm, not, I'm not putting down a cheapening belief, but it's, it's easy to have a belief that's different. It's a much different thing to have an outworking that's different. That is endurance. So Peter will tackle this question. He's, he's encouraging us to tackle this question of basically, are our ways as heavenly as our beliefs? Are our ways as heavenly as our beliefs? Because just as our beliefs belong to God's design, our ways need to be within God's design as well. You guys okay? I'm zooming. Scroll up, James. Scroll up. Scroll up. So, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 11. Read with me. It'll be on the screen behind. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And right away, off the top, there is an expectation that you and I are completely foreign in our placement here in this world. Why? Because there has been a kingdom transference. You and I were once in the kingdom of darkness, but through our belief in Jesus Christ, Peter has already elaborated. We have a new birth into a living hope. There is a transference of kingdom. You and I are foreigners here because we're not citizens here. If someone's visiting our nation and their citizenhood is, citizenship is somewhere else, they are a foreigner here, and you and I are the same way. That positional transference before God also accompanies a personal present renewal, a personal present renewal. Here's what I mean by that. We know that our eternal position is changed. Back in the first chapter of First Peter, in verse 3, he writes, in his great mercy, God, he has given us new birth into a living hope. I'm going to hammer these things in the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our eternal position is changed, but our personhood is now presently recreated. Our personhood is now presently recreated. Later on in chapter 1, in verse 23, Peter explains, For you've been born again. You've been born again. Not of perishable seed, not of tawdry, throwaway things, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. And therefore, Peter can say to us, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Therefore, the Jesus that the world rejects is a stumbling stone. We embrace with preciousness as a cornerstone. So... As foreigners and exiles, completely recreated from the world, we're going to need to realize something, and we're going to have to do something very important, and that is we are going to have to come to God's intention for the how, the way, the design of the outworking of our lives. We're going to have to come to God's intention for that on his terms. We're going to have to come to that on his terms. The definition of frustration will be trying to come to God's intentions for us on the world's outworking in terms. Come on, that's like a, it's like a cut with salt in it. It's just terrible. It's not going to work. We can't come with the knee-jerk terms of the world. And honestly, what I'm describing to you, I know, is very hard. It's very hard. So as Peter teaches us to endure, for example... He's going to use some terms that make us itch a little bit in 2017. We're going to have some terms today like submission, slavery, freedom, a good life. Stuff that, honestly, I'm not unaware of the fact it carries some baggage currently, culturally for us. But we must preach it, and we must preach it and come to it not with our baggage, we have to recognize our baggage, and then we have to ask the question. And I'm not, I'm not saying baggage as a, I'm not downplaying it or belittling. I'm saying all that comes with it that we can't escape in our current culture. 
And then we have to say, what is God's intention for his design of it, and what does God mean? When we get that, we can bring that back to the how in our current world, and that is the endurance that God is calling us to. Each of us is going to bring a particular and very valid set of sensitivities to what, to what we think of as enduring in an unjust world. And I, and I want to emphasize valid. Some things are born out of incredibly meaningful experience. And you've experienced things that have attuned your sensitivities in ways that I haven't. And I've experienced things that have attuned mine in ways that you haven't. And if we bring the posture and reactions of the world, we will lose the fullness of life available to us that God offers in the midst of enduring in these things. We have the what. Endurance is living out the how. And letting God define how we think about them. Now, since the room is a little heavy, and you know that I'm a lighthearted guy, I have good news. Endurance bears fruit. Endurance bears fruit. Bears fruit is a, is a biblical term. It sometimes gets a little churchy if you're not familiar with it. It just means it has a necessary result. It has an impact. It's, it's a consequence of something. It bears fruit. It's not endurance for endurance's sake. That's crazy. Come on. That's nowhere in Scripture. Endurance bears fruit. In other words, God has a very specific reason for our endurance. It accomplishes the purposes of what God actually desires and fulfills our hearts by being in step with the ways in which we go about it, with God's intentions. Here's more good news, maybe the best news. Jesus also endured. Jesus also endured for the fruit of what his endurance would bear. So I think we need to preach kind of the end of 1 Peter chapter 2 before we get to the middle part that I want to focus on because it's the part that speaks of how Jesus endured. And I know I'm not trying to go out of order in Scripture, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Peter's letter. I wish my letter to my gym membership would have been as cool as his letter here, you know, like starting with as all the great things the gym membership had done. And I just, but I, it was really just one sentence. But we need to take what, how Jesus endured and let that set the tone for how we will endure. Yes? So 1 Peter chapter 2, let's go down all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, listen, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for forgiveness. By his wounds you have been healed, Peter quotes the Old Testament. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Currently my favorite phrase in all of scripture. Now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Man, that fisherman Peter, he can write eventually, can't he? We're way beyond cutting off a soldier's ear now. Jesus' enduring meant one thing very specifically. It meant entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. It is not an acceptance of injustice. It is a recognition of where actual justice sits. 
Enduring must mean the same for us. Not entrusting ourselves to our own arguments or our own methods of the world or to the world's sense of justice, but rather to God's. And what did Jesus endure? Jesus endured, in short, everything he was worthy not to endure. He was, wor- he was without sin. No deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults, he did not ret- re- retaliate. He, he endured our sin bodily on the cross, which he was fully worthy to not have to endure. And what was the fruit that Jesus bore? The fruit that Jesus bore essentially was you and I get everything we were always unworthy to have. By his wounds we have been healed, Peter reminds us. We've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The fruit of a new birth. The fruit of an inheritance that won't perish, spoil, or fade. All that, all that the opening of the letter says, this is what we celebrate. That's the fruit of what Jesus accomplished by his endurance. So much fruit eternally on our behalf. All by entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Here's the best part. The God of the universe who asks us to endure very specifically in this age, this side of heaven, does not do that without enduring for us. The God of this universe who asks us to endure has not not endured for us. That's two knots there for you English majors. Now, in light of what Jesus has endured... Let's go back to the top of where we're starting in chapter 2 and look at how Peter encourages us to endure. You guys okay? All right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. First of all, I want to submit to you that we endure an unjust world with our lives, specifically with our holy lives. What do we need to recognize? Well, firstly, we need to recognize that you and I still carry the effects of a sin nature, this side of heaven. We still carry the effects of a sin nature. It has been overthrown. It has been redeemed. It has been recreated. We are new creations in Christ. But there is still the, the, the prerogative on our part to return to saying yes to it. You and I war against it every day. And therefore, there's an inevitable conflict not only within us, but in the world. Because, spoiler alert, the world also has a sinful nature and it's not abstaining from it. The world's not abstaining from its sinful nature. We've already, we've already said it's putting on display the full inventive effects of, of all the ramifications of it. So for us to be in that world, abstaining from our sinful desires, living out our, our, our existence as a new creation, there will be conflict. And guess what? You will be accused of being wrong and doing wrong. And it will not make sense. And it will not reason out well. And it will be harsh. And it will be infuriating, and it will be based on the conflict between you and a world that is not abstaining from its own sinful desires. But again, we have to get our bearings from God's defining of what it means to live a holy life. Be holy because I am holy, the Lord says. Why? To make it tough on ourselves? No, because there's fruit of enduring with a holy life. There is fruit of enduring with a holy life. And that fruit is this, that people will glorify God on the day he visits us, Peter writes. And that's taken widely to mean when God moves in power, when it is clearly God that is moving, 
And, and, the, and the kingdom of God is advancing through all of the, of the characteristics of God. We sang, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When that is occurring, that people recognize, oh, I, I know Nancy Heche. This is God. Because I recognize this from Nancy's life. Nancy's infuriating, completely convicting, I can't even stand her sometimes because she's so different than me life. This is God. You know, I will fully admit that there have been hardly any situations in my life where I have been a true minority, but one blessed, incredibly exciting thing that our family takes part in is our girls go to school uh, at a school that is, it's a wonderful neighborhood school, CPS school, that uh, is 95% of Hispanic origin. And our girls are fluent in Spanish. It's so amazing. We have had an amazing three or four years with our, with our girls at this school. And here's a hilarious thing that happens. When I go to pick up our kids, everybody just says to me, oh, you're Amelia's dad. <laughs> oh, Laurel May's dad. I've never met them. Do you know why they recognize me? Because they've seen my kids. How amazing that when God moves... That people who have spat in your face say, that's God, because I've met his kids. Oh, I know Ken and Anka. This is God. That's the fruit of enduring with a holy life. How else do we endure? Let's pick it up in verse 13. Submit yourselves. Oh, let me say, we endure an unjust world with our lives for the fruit of unbelievers recognizing God when he moves. For the fruit of unbelievers recognizing God when he moves. Almost left out a crucial point there. Sorry about that. Scroll up. Scroll up. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Oh, love it. Just come on, Peter. Hurt me. Just Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority for the Lord's sake. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. All right, here we go. We endure an unjust world with our submission. We endure an unjust world with our submission. Well, what should we recognize? Let's recognize this. Submission in 2017 has a very not fun meaning in our hearts. I would like to, I would like to try to define the way much of the world, and sometimes us maybe, the way we approach submission, the definition as this, mindless acquiescence and agreement. Mindless acquiescence and agreement. It's, oh, yes. Perfect. So if we have that, and we hear God say, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, we say, have you met some of them? Even the one you're thinking of? And if we're not careful, we can read this to mean agree with every human authority. But we need to get God's rendering of submission and reclaim it for ourselves and then display that. God's rendering of submission, I would, I would submit to you, is a humble-hearted honor and yielding. A humble-hearted honoring and yielding. Not necessarily agreement. It's a recognition of human authority, a recognition of it, because God is actually the supreme authority. We so often get this wrong. We so, so often get this wrong, and I'm preaching. Maybe I should just sit down right there and say this, because I'm preaching to myself more than anybody else in this room. So often, we as believers make our, make our, submiss, 
our submission try to be outworked like this. I have to submit to you, but I so disagree with you that I'm going to make myself look exactly like you in the vicious, spiteful, mean way that I tell you that you're wrong. So often it comes out of our mouths. I just don't like that human authority. Have you just seen the way they talk and how they think and who they are? They can just, and then I kind of want to be like, have you seen the way we talk and how we are when we talk about how they are and how they talk? Stop it, Peter says. Stop it. We are different in what we believe. Not so with the how sometimes, James Lusk. We look just like the world if the what of what we believe is undercut by the how. Hashtag make submission great again. (laughs) God doesn't call you to agreement with human authority. He does not. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles have been out preaching the name of Jesus. They They are thrown in jail. They are then supernaturally freed from jail. They are back in the courtyards preaching Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, bring them back in, uh, in, in cuffs or whatever they had at the time, and they say, stop preaching Jesus. And Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. Not, oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Let me mindlessly acquiesce to your request. No, but they are submitted in the sense that they are honoring, humble-hearted, and yielding to the recognition of authority, but who is the supreme authority? And if those religious leaders can get mad about anything, it's not what the guys posted on their social media. It's the actions that they outworked in submission to God. Sounds like endurance, doesn't it? Sounds like endurance to me. So again, we get our bearings from how God thinks about submission. Why? Because there's fruit. There's fruit for enduring. And what is the fruit? For it is by God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of ignorant, foolish people. You ever met any of those? Ever been one? I see that hand again. Let me say this. Honor and gentleness will tear down ignorance faster than an opposing argument. Honor and gentleness will tear down ignorance faster than an opposing argument. God is on to something here. In Philippians 4, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. There is some... Disagreement among scholars of whether or not it originally said, let your social media status and hashtags be evident to all, but I think they settled on let your gentleness be evident to all. And I'm being cheeky, but we, come on. Honor and gentleness provide what? The moment for the Holy Spirit to come and do what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was coming to do, and that is convict the world of sin. And he's really good at it. Much better than you and me, actually. That's what happens when we submit with honor and gentleness. And then there's opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move and the opportunity for there to be salvation. And then ignorance is truly silenced. We endure an unjust world with our submission for the fruit of allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction. I know there's much more that we could go into on that, but I'm gonna leave it there for right now. And I'm happy to talk more if you have more thoughts. Moving on. I'm going to hustle. Verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, okay? Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We're in the nitty-gritty. We're in the nitty-gritty. 
There's dirt under your fingernails. We're doing this. We endure an unjust world with our freedom. Oh, that's much better, James. Thank you very much. We endure an unjust world with our freedom. What must we recognize? Another shocker, spoiler alert. God has a different idea of freedom than the world. The world's idea of freedom, I would define as an unaccountable, self-centered license. Unaccountable, self-centered license. And ironically, I think this is the root of injustice. Why? Because I'm going after my unaccountable, self-centered license pursuit, and you're in my freaking way, and I'm going to run you over. And the more that happens, the more that happens, and the more that comes out of my mouth, the more that's in my life, then suddenly we're all doing that. Some of us have been run over. Some of us have reached another place, and we're in a room that is divided between the free and the unfree, and it's unjust because of freedom or because of the world's idea of the outworking of freedom. You guys get my passion. I'm not mad. I'm just, I, yeah, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just fired up about how off this can be. And this is also the root, not only of injustice, but it's the root of fear. Why is that? Because you better be free. Oh, you better be free. Because if you're not, someone else, their unaccountable, self-centered license runs you over and and you're left like roadkill in the middle of the road and and now the injustice is bearing down on you. And that's not what you want. You want to be on top where your injustice can bear down on someone else. Shift it around. Shift around the hate. Shift around the brokenness. Shift around the results. Get out of the way. Duck. Play frogger with injustice. That's the world's approach. And it's incredibly fearful. That's the fear people walk around with, and you can taste it. You can taste it. So again, we got to get our bearings from how God thinks about freedom. Live as free people, God says. Live as free people. Thirteen words later, live as God's slaves. Okay, why? Why? Because there's something different about freedom with God as master Versus with ourselves as master. Verse 23, we we remember, God is the one who judges justly. In him is the perfect, undiluted character of things like love and holiness and grace and justice. Personified in the man, Jesus Christ. So as God's slaves to that master, to the perfect Lord, our identity is bestowed and outworked by his design in Christ. So if we take our identity from that master, from that relationship, therefore we're secure and we don't have fear. And we don't have to fear. So honor the emperor. Submit to one another. Love the body. Fear God. Fear God with reverence. You're not walking around shaking in your boots because my identity is in Christ. So yeah, honor the emperor. Show respect. You're free. You're like the genie at the end of Aladdin. I'm free. Not with unaccountable license, but with secure identity. Because I'm living as a free man, as God's slave. They're not in conflict. We endure an unjust world with, the, with our freedom for the fruit of portraying fearless life in Jesus Christ. And it's confounding to the world. And desperately attractive in their heart of hearts. Lastly, I'm bringing it in hot here. 
Here we go. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. We endure an unjust world with our posture, not with our slavery. We're already slaves to God. We endure an unjust world with our posture. There's way too much to preach on this, all that you're thinking right now, about some of what might be implied by these verses. But I want to say here that the word slavery here is not a tacit endorsement of human ownership and oppression. It's just not. Let's go ahead and settle in our hearts that we're not going to put that in the mouth of a God who has said overtly over and over, I have come to set the captives free. It's not a tacit endorsement of what we have most recently struggled with in the idea of slavery. There is a conversation about that here, but that's not where the thrust of this is. The understanding of slavery here is a servant who is indebted. It's a servant who is indebted. And there is a master-to-servant relationship. And it's working towards a freedom and working towards a repayment. And those scenarios were worked out with good and bad relationships. Sometimes harsh, sometimes good. So what must, we, what must we recognize here? That our posture will sometimes be exalted and sometimes it will be diminished. And in each position, there is a responsibility to look to God as supreme authority. In each. So again, we have to get our bearings from God's thoughts on, on our posture. What, is the verse, what are some of the things that, that this passage reminds us of? I'll read them. That it's he who commends. God bestows commendation, injustice or in injustice. God does not command us to seek suffering and enjoy it. God God doesn't say get after suffering. God just says it will come. It will come. And he does instruct our posture in the midst of it. And by the way, he's the one who judges justly. God is the one who judges justly. So we endure an unjust world with our posture for the fruit of what? God's commendation. And you know what? The Bible is not singularly clear on every way and time that God's commendation comes. It's just not. So I'm not going to try to soften that, pulling out things that aren't there. But the Bible is clear that God's commendation does come and will come. Whether today, tomorrow, or at the foot of Jesus in the last moment. And I can't conceive or describe of everything that God's commendation will include. And that's probably pretty good. That's probably a good thing. If I could define it and package it, I probably couldn't convey it very well. And it probably would seem to coin it, to use the same word we've been using, tawdry. But God's commendation is not tawdry. We endure an unjust world with our posture for the fruit of God's commendation. Are we living with God's commendation? just a minute, I'm going to hand it back over to Matt. Are, are our ways as heavenly as our beliefs? Do we function with God's definition of things that are meaningful to the how we work out the what instead of the world's stain and extras that are on those things? And lastly, 
when you hear endure, do you hear endure for endurance's sake? Or are you reminded, God has fruit. God has fruit. This is meaningful. I long to see it, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus endured for me. And the fruit of that is that I walk in everything I was not worthy to. And for that reason, I can entrust myself to the one who judges justly.